Welcome to Center Stage with international opera star Pamela Kuhn. And now, here is your host, Pamela Kuhn. Good morning, everyone, and the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. You know, in the world of art, I have certain passions that go beyond my love of music. The most important of these is that of the film world, the movies, the moving image, the film score as a separate art form that I feel can stand alone. I lean towards film noir and some of the early films of John Ford for their texture, the tool of black and white creating the thrill in stark realities being played out on screen. Entranced by the wafting smoke of a cigarette, we can be lulled into a backlit dreamlike state. And the visual impact of the still photographic image is no different. The black and white images of Ansel Adams and Walker Evans come to my mind as pinnacles of conveying intense emotion in a single f-stop on the camera. The advantage of having an outstanding photographer capturing a moment in history is perhaps as riveting as having the mastery of Alfred Hitchcock behind the moving image. I will use the words of the great. French humanist and candid photographer Henri Cartier-Bresson, whose words are perfect now. Of all the means of expression, photography is the only one that fixes a precise moment in time. It is the simultaneous recognition in a fraction of a second of the significance of an event. Photographers deal in things which are continually vanishing, and when they have vanished, there is no contrivance on earth which will make them come back again. When we regard a great photograph, and especially a comprehensive and fulfilling exhibition, we are drawn into a world that perhaps, as Cartier-Bresson has said, is in danger of vanishing. Recently, at the Flynn Gallery at the Greenwich Library, a new photographic exhibition is opened, giving all of us the opportunity to behold precise moments in our memories forever. The show is called The American Lens, Black and White Photography. This is a fantastic exhibition, revealing through the grit and beauty of realism a cross-section of photographic works, ranging from iconic urban landscapes to the American cowboy. This exhibition contains the work of George Tice, Bruce Water, Peter Bosco, John Langmore, and his father, Bank Langmore, the legendary cowboy photographer whose pictures grace the 1975 book, The Cowboy. John Langmore has now retraced his father's steps, going to some of the same areas and ranches as his father did over 40 years ago to photograph the cowboy existence in the 21st century. This is an exciting notion and one that has led to a three-year project participating in the life of a cowboy, staying in the saddle, sleeping in tents, and working with the cattle. Visiting some of the largest ranches in the United States with his Leica camera, he has lived out his dream of living the cowboy life. In a collaborative project with his father, there are over 100 black and white and color photographs making up The Return of the Cowboy. And it is my pleasure today to have the photographer behind the lens of the gorgeous cross-section of photograph, chronicling the work and everyday life of the vanishing breed of American cowboy as we know it. I welcome John Langmore to Center Stage. John, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you, Pamela. It's a pleasure to be here. I, oh. I appreciate your interest in the show and oh, all your kind words. Absolutely. And your presentation on Saturday afternoon at the Greenwich Library was absolutely excellent with your talk about being a cowboy, the reality of it all, living within. Well, you know, it's a subject I'm 
I'm passionate about and I think anytime, anytime you're passionate about anything, it always uh, it comes through in ways that people respond to. And I've loved the life of the working cowboy since I was a young boy. Okay, so, you know, in order for all of us to understand your journey, um, let's get to know you a little bit better. Where, sure. where are you from originally? I was raised in Richardson, Texas, so Dallas. Oh, okay. Um, that's where I, and then I moved to San Antonio my junior year of high school, and then I went to school in Austin for eight years. Mm -hmm. And you and your father have one thing in common. You both started out with careers in corporate America, and you, you both traded that in for life behind the camera, and I think as wanderers, so to speak, um, in this broad landscape of the American West. Uh, your dad was ascending the corporate ladder at Anderson Clayton in Dallas, and you were an aspiring lawyer. Are you the son that was cut from the same cloth as your dad? God, I, you know, it's, I, <laughs> I always try, thought I was not, I was the apple that was trying to fall far from the tree and realized really? I fell right underneath it. Um, yeah, my father was, he's a photographer, obviously, he was well known for his work around the cowboy primarily. Then my mother became a photographer after him and opened a successful portrait studio in San Antonio, which then my brother joined my mom and mm -hmm. um, still runs today. And then my sister joined my brother. So everyone in the family was a professional photographer. And I thought by going to law school and pursuing a professional life, um, you know, in the corporate world that... I was getting away from them until someone gave me a camera as a gift, and I found myself yanked right back into the, the, the DNA of photography that runs through our family veins. Uh, without a doubt, this definitely runs through your veins. So now the circle is complete. You've come back to being what you were meant to be, really. Yes, I'm. It's. I have to admit, I. Something must have been simmering. I grew up around photography, and I loved photography as a child. I looked at books. I looked at all my dad's prints that he made and spent so much time in the darkroom with my father. So I had a deep affinity mm. for photography. And everyone that passed through our house had something to do with photography. All the family friends were photographers or museum curators or... Cornell Kappa, the head of ICP, was a close friend, and so those were all the people I grew up around. So I think it was, a, a love of photography was buried in me, and it was that gift of a camera, not from my parents, by the way, it was from my <laughs> wife's parents that gave me the gift of a camera as we were off on our honeymoon, but it was the second I got a camera in my hand, that that was it. That was all she wrote. Mm -hmm. I was a photographer from that point forward. And, and because you'd spent so much time with your father, like in, in the developing studio, you knew what you were doing. I, I, I didn't really know. I didn't know what I was doing. What I, what I think I had a sense of was how to undertake a major project because I watched my father do it with wow. the cowboy and there's a lot to that getting access being committed to it <clears throat> producing the images editing the images but it, I, I was struggling I hit a ceiling I would say I was a competent amateur until I took a workshop with a well-known National Geographic photographer named David Allen Harvey in 2006 and 
most of my photography up to that point was travel photography. I would be very serious about it when I went on a trip, but you know, there was no purpose to it besides trying to make a single nice image. Um, there was no driving motivation behind it. Then David told me, you need to go do a project, John. You need to give your work some more intense meaning and build a body of work around a connected theme. That's how you're going to break the ceiling that you're running up against. Mm -hmm. It was such great advice. And I went back home in 2006 and started a project on a very distinctive part of Austin. It's East Austin. It's east of Interstate 35. That's very close to downtown. But it was unique in that there was about seven blocks that were Latino. And then there's a one-street division at 7th Street. Then it becomes an African-American neighborhood. And those neighborhoods have been there since the 30s. And now, you know, which is a very classic story across America, they're being gentrified. I'm mm -hmm. surprised it took so long because it's the proximity of these neighborhoods to downtown. Mm -hmm. So I went in and photographed the existing community that was, you know, destined to be lost. And it's largely lost even this short period of time later, 10 years later. So that was my first project. And it is amazing how it transformed my work. I mean, my work prior to that and my work subsequent to that are entirely different that and there's just something to be said for focusing in on a photographic project and binding your work your images together by a common theme mm -hmm. but also getting to know your subjects all of the hard work of you know going to all the events you know trying to find a way to get people to accept you to invite you into their homes and being honest <laughs> and taking photographs back you know, I had a sense of that from my father, but it was really David's advice that set me on that path to pursue something like that. And then, then the cowboy is the latest manifestation of that same effort at a much greater level. You yeah. know, this is much more ambitious than huge. any project I've done before, yes. So your work, maybe you, you did become a lawyer, and so you had a sense of structure, and maybe you took that in into building these projects. Maybe that sense helped you. It, it it probably does. What what I, where I know it has helped me mm -hmm. is um, in, in terms of getting the projects out into the world, mm -hmm. being able to talk to whether they're sponsors or museums or come up with creative ways to make a project work financially for me and a museum at the same time, and being able to talk to funders because it is a hard. Hard, photography is such a tough business. Yeah, it, it is. It's so hard to rise above the fray. And I have found that, and my father had the same thing. You know, I have a, a, a business mind as well as an artistic mind. And I'm not, uh, mm -hmm. I'm not speaking to the merits of them, but just that they exist. Mm -hmm. Not that I have a great you know, business mind or a great artistic mind, but I, I, I'm able to hold both of those in my head at the same time. It has definitely helped me get my work out into the world, um, which I think is, you know, there are so many great photographers that are amazing and their just work never sees the light of day because they don't have an ability to, you know, move it forward and put it out into the yeah. world, which is yeah. is a shame that that it requires that, but it's a reality. It's the same in all of the arts, really, John. Of course, John. It is. I absolutely. Mean, it's so That's right. hard, especially these days. But I think photography, especially, is very hard to sell, even though. 
if I have a choice between going to a major art exhibition and going to a photographic exhibition, I will always go for the photos. Always. People love photographs. I, uh, I do too. No, I mean, I don't even fully appreciate why there's, there's just something about a depiction, an artistic de depiction of reality. There is. It's that moment that you yeah. capture that is so incredible. It's like um, I, I quoted Henri Cartier-Bresson, yeah, uh, and he's so famous for capturing the ordinary on the, the street. The decisive moment, yeah. And it is so important. And he's right. These moments vanish, and we may never find that, again, of course, in history. But still, you have that in your own uh, photographic prowess. Well, you, you have some beautiful moments in the lives of these cowboys. So let's get into this. Talk to us about being a cowboy. What was it like in this three-year mission of yours? Yeah, I think, you know, this project to me, so I spent 12 summers of my youth cowboying from the age of 12 through my first year of law school. After my first year of law school is the last time I went out with a wagon. So I, and, and all I, I spent nine months in the city going to school, just anxious to get back out with the cowboys again. Really? Um, yeah. Wow. No, it was, so it was who I was. Um, and I suppose in some respects, it's still who I am. But so to me, pursuing this project was in large respect, returning to a place that I came from. Mm -hmm. That's very important to me, but that I left behind. Once I started to pursue my legal career, I spent almost 35 years away from cowboys with very little contact back with that world, other than a few friends and occasionally visiting one friend that has a ranch. Wow. But I was largely... That was quite know, a separation. Yeah, no, I left my cowboy past behind, and and I always lamented it, but didn't have a reason to go back. So this project, it's allowed me to go back, which is, by the way, is one of the amazing things about photography. But it also, you know, in some respects, I'm picking up where my father left off. You know, what's the state of the big outfit cowboy 40 years after it was photographed by Bank Langmore and, you know, mm -hmm. 35 years after I lived that life. Um, so uh, I want to tell that story. And it's, um, you know, it's been an incredibly rewarding experience, as you can imagine, to, you know, be part of these guys' lives and, and return to my own roots and, you know, produce, produce work I hope that people find meaningful. In, in a way, can I just ask you a personal question, John? Of course John? you can. I mean, did you See if feel, I answer it. <laughs> when you were in corporate, did you feel maybe you were a bit of an imposter in that role, that maybe your heart was still somewhere else? I mean, you were looking for big sky country. I know you spent some time in Asia. You know, you were, you were a typical um, corporate guy in the office in a suit. I mean, how, how often did you think about getting back to this? Um, I, so I wouldn't say I was an imposter because there is a part of me that loved what I did. Mm -hmm. Like I loved the intellectual challenge of being a corporate attorney mm -hmm. that in, you know, I enjoyed writing law review articles and, and I, I, there's, you know, there's a part of my brain that was being exercised that I really enjoyed. With that being said, I never really fit in. You know, I lasted two years at a big corporate law firm, and, and I, was, I was a fish out of water. I lasted 11 years in corporate America, and I would say probably it was because I spent half of that time in Asia, which is where Caterpillar sent all kind of the crazy guys. We'd all get <laughs> shipped off to Asia, you know. As long as we produced our result, uh, you know, the required results, they sort of corporate left us alone. So it was... 
you know, I was able to kind of, you know, uh, satisfy two different desires that coexist within me. You know, one is mm -hmm. this this desire to operate at a high level, you know, intellectually, and, mm -hmm. and Caterpillar offered that. You know, there was a lot of intellectual challenges to getting things done in Asia and producing mm -hmm. the results that corporate wanted, but at the same time, there was, you know, that kind of wild side of life was... I was able to, to satisfy that by traveling to, you know, wherever Laos exotic or Burma, places. exotic places <laughs> in, in Mongolia. You know, I was, I just kept going back to Mongolia because it was, it looked like Montana in the 1800s. Of course. And, so, and, the, and they're big. And the horse, horse culture. Back. Yeah, no, it's oh a huge gosh. horse culture. And so nobody, everybody wanted to go there once from Singapore. We were headquartered in Singapore, but covering Mongolia from Singapore. All of the executives wanted to go once, and there was me and one other guy who's from Montana that always wanted to go back. Like we, so they finally said, "Look, John, if you and Craig can go develop the business in Mongolia, y'all have that. You know, y'all like going back. Fine." So that's what we did, and it was that's how I kept that side of me satisfied. And it's funny because then they moved me from Asia back to Nashville, mm -hmm. and I started to wither in Nashville pretty quickly. Um, and then they're headquartered in Peoria and I wasn't going to make it in Peoria. So we moved back to Austin and that's when I really started to, you know, pursue projects and mm -hmm. get much more serious about mm -hmm. my photography. And now every three months I got to go back out to another ranch. And now I know all the cowboys and the ranch owners. So they'll have me out whenever I want. And I that's take fantastic. advantage of it. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I'm a lucky guy. And, and you're accepted because as I yeah. understand your your dad, Bank Langmore, he started out um, traveling to all these um, uh, uh, ranches between Oregon and Mexico. He covered 20,000 miles of ranches initially, I understand. And sometimes they're not so trusting of, of the photographer who's just coming in, you know, to, to sit aside a horse and photograph them. And then, oh, they're going to write a story about them, too. How do you gain that trust? Yeah, it's... Um... <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a funny thing. The, the, the cowboys, and so my father and I photographed kind of a subculture within the cowboy world, big outfit cowboys. You know, it's not really a term of art, but close to a term of art. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a group of cowboys that, unlike a family ranch, which does the same type of work, every bit as authentic group of people, what we went to was, was something different than that. So... Big outfits that operate on, let's say, 250,000 is kind of the smallest ranch, up to about a million and a half acres. Wow. Run five to 10,000 mother cows, but mainly run a full crew of working cowboys. So some of these places have a crew of 14 cowboys, and they're very itinerant. You know, they move around among these big outfits and they kind of chase the wagons, you know, who's pulling out a wagon. And, and they're always wanting to go to where, who, where someplace new where they've heard they've got great horses or a great boss to work for. So, so it's a subculture within the cowboy world that we were photographing. Mm -hmm. And they're very tight-knit. And I will say they're a bit, you know, they're a bit standoffish, not... To the outside world, but if you want into that world, then they're they're standoffish. Mm -hmm. And 
it's funny because like when I would show up on a ranch, they would know my background. They would always know I'm Bank Langmore's son. That's the mm -hmm. first thing I would tell a ranch when I called it to try and get access. And then I would mention the ranches that I worked on, which are all very well known in this big outfit world. Almost all of them still exist, not all of them. Um, and uh, so um, I could just feel them sizing me up. You know, right. they look at how you wear your hat, what kind of boots you wear, <laughs> what does your gear look like, you know, what's the, you know, what style of saddle do you ride, what sort of bits do you use, mm -hmm. and... And can you ride a horse? No, exactly, well, of course. So there's, first they size you up by your gear, but then the second you start to work, man, they are paying such close attention. How do you catch your horse, you know? How do you approach your horse? How do you saddle up your horse? Are you the last one to be saddled up, which is a cardinal rule? You're never to be the last one saddled up. So they would watch, like, does Langmore know, you know, that he needs to be saddled up before the rest of the crew? You know, and then, of course, they watch how you get on your horse. How You can watch someone mount a horse and know whether or not, you know, they've cowboyed before. Mm -hmm. Because you stand in front of your horse so they don't kick you when you're getting on... You know, you, you stand in front of your saddle when you mount the horse. You don't stand behind the stirrup. You stand in front of it. Mm -hmm. Little things like that that they are just clued into. And it usually took about three or four days for them to watch me work. And then if ever I had a chance to rope and they could see that I could rope and drag calves to a branding fire, that's usually when the dynamic totally shifted and they accepted me and... Um, it, it, it was it was rewarding for me to like feel that acceptance again like okay I'm back to where I was as a kid you know and a young man growing up cowboying it was every bit as meaningful as the photography I and mm -hmm. neither was more or less meaningful mm -hmm. they were equally like the fact that I was back with the cowboys being accepted by them was every bit as meaningful as you know my desire to produce a beautiful image um, oh, you know a beautiful Beautiful and poignant put. image. So, yeah, it's, it's, and again, I would put it, you know, I'm a lucky person, but it's also the beauty of photography. And if, you know, anyone has a, is serious about their own photography, I would encourage them to do the same. Start small and near your own home and work up to something big and there's n nothing in the world better other than maybe your family. You know. Oh, that's that's so beautifully put, John. And I just want to remind my listeners at 1490 WGCH that I'm sitting here with John Langmore, son of Bank Langmore. They're both wonderful photographers. And they're presently viewing um, their own photos at um, the Flynn Gallery in Greenwich, uh, Connecticut, at the library. Um, what, what are some of your favorite spots and adventures here along the way, John? In the cowboy world or mm -hmm. otherwise? Mm -hmm, in the cowboy world. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so I, I, got, I got to tell a Benny Binion story just because they are so great. And these are, like, this is, the, you know, how I became the person I am. So my father, when he set out and did his book on the cowboy, he obviously he went to, I, I want to say, 17 ranches. You mentioned 20,000 miles earlier. He mm -hmm. covered the West, got to know a lot of big ranchers in the process, and... And I, my father developed a love of the cowboy because his grandfather was a Teddy Roosevelt rough rider and had worked on ranches in Montana. And so he filled my dad's head with stories about cowboys. 
And then my dad read Will James' book, Will James' books, who's a famous cowboy author. He was a working cowboy and an author and an artist in the 30s. And uh, I read those same books, and my dad filled my head with cowboy stories. <laughs> and so it just made its way down. All I wanted to do growing up was be a cowboy. And so um, as my dad set out to do this book, I was like, Dad, you got to find me a job on a ranch. And I remember standing in my house reading the postcard that he had sent me and said, I found this legendary rancher, outlaw gambler in eastern Montana that says he'll take you on. My dad told Benny, it was the guy's name is Benny Binion, and he had Binion's Horseshoe Casino in Las Vegas, but was, you know, to me he was a horseman. To the rest of the world he was a gambler. Um, my dad said, told Benny I was 13 when I was 12 because he didn't think Benny would hire me if I was 12. <laughs> And Benny said, yeah, your son wants to be a cowboy. We'll send him up here and we'll find out, you know, if he really wants to be a cowboy. And so being around Benny, you know, was a was a crazy upbringing. And so there was a time when I think I was 14 this summer and um, I was left on the ranch with Benny's daughter, Becky. Um, I was 14. I'm betting Becky was probably in her upper 20s at the time, a very attractive woman and the cook, Jimmy Touche. And. Jimmy, so I'm told, was Eisenhower's cook in World War II. Really? Um, yeah. This is a second life for Jimmy. Wound up on this super remote ranch in eastern <laughs> Montana cooking for the Binions. And uh, so I was on the ranch with Becky and Jimmy. And Becky comes out one morning, like 2.30 in the morning, wakes me up and says, Jimmy's in the kitchen acting weird, John. I don't know what's going on, but it's not right. So... You, you know, will you come in and kind of help me sort this out? Sure, Becky. So I go in and she said, you know, I got dad on the phone. Talk to dad. So I get on the phone with Benny and Benny says, oh, man, that touche. Listen, you go in my bedroom there in the main house and you get that shotgun. And if Jimmy acts up, you shoot him. And John, if you got to shoot Jimmy, you know, we'll take care of you. Don't worry about it. Everything will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so... I wasn't about to shoot Jimmy Touche, but I got the shotgun, as Benny asked me to, and I went and sat in a chair just outside the kitchen, and, and Jimmy heard me on the phone, and I'm sure he figured I was talking to Benny, and so he looks out the kitchen door and sees me sitting in this chair with a shotgun, and he figured out what I had been told. So Jimmy, without a word, turned off the lights and beelined back to the bedroom, and, uh, you know, I didn't have to shoot the cook, and but that's, uh, you know, there's so many stories like that. Living and working out west, that uh, you know, I, I, I know we, we and we could fill the whole interview with you know the milestones mm -hmm. and the moments along the way that you know make me appreciate the cowboy world and uh, <laughs> that were so wonderful. You know, my times with the Benny and his family, the Binions were you know they're certainly memorable at an entirely different level. John Langmore, it has been such a pleasure to have you here on Center Stage. I need to ask you one Thank more you, question. Thank you, Pamela. It's been a pleasure. Please. If I have to ask you what one word sums you up, have you oh, got that for me? good heavens. <laughs> oh, my God. What one word sums me up? Passionate. How about that? I think, I think so. anybody would say I'm, I'm passionate about any... 
And for everyone who has seen your work at the Flynn Gallery and everyone who saw you in your beautiful presentation on Saturday at Greenwich Library, they, they know that passion. Ladies and gentlemen, you must go to see the American Lens at the Flynn Gallery running from September 15 through October 19th. It's a short run. Do not miss this. It will lead you into another world. John Langmore, thank you so much for being with us on Center Stage. I hope you'll come back. The pleasure was all mine. Please do. And don't fall off any horses, please. I will be back, and I'll try and stay in my saddle. I'll try and stay in the center of the horse. All right, and the curtain is down on Center Stage. Mm -hmm.